So if you are new, I don't know why you would be listening to uh, episode, episode four, four of the series um, of Warm Bodies, our intermediary series. Um, but, you know, to each their own. If you're new to this show of ours, um, a little bit of background. This is my favorite book. I've read it so many times. Not as many times as I've read Twilight, much to much to my chagrin. Um, but I own a lot of copies of Warm Bodies. And two of the copies I own are movie copies. One of them is the good movie copy that I like to call it because it's actually a really good movie cover. Um, and then the other one is the bad one. And I have been reading out of my good movie cover because I... Um, I don't know. It's the least valuable of the, of the ones that I own, I guess, um, that I owned before we started. And I couldn't find it when we were like finishing <laughs> the series to read the last part of the series. I could not find it. I was looking everywhere for it, had no idea where I'd put it. So I was like, okay, let me crack open another copy of it. I'll just grab the bad movie cover so that if I like destroy the spine, I don't really care. Right. So I grab it and it's a UK vintage version. So which is a publisher over there. And um, it's like weird. Like the quotes are just apostrophes in it. So when I first started reading it from this copy, I was confused. There's also typos in it. And I'm, I'm like, did is this like an early copy of it? I don't understand. How is this a movie cover? But also, it's, like, bad. Also, the person who owned it before me, because almost every single copy of this series that I own is pre-owned, um, the person who owned it before me wrote in it, but they did not... I showed it to you when we were trying to record the other day. They wrote it like they're writing fucking Japanese, but in yes. English. <laughs> yeah, so they wrote, like, down the 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 margins of the book but like in english but like they didn't they wrote the words like <laughs> vertical for some reason so they like wrote on many pages of the book i i was like trying to decipher what they were writing but their handwriting is also not very good um so basically i had a very strange experience <laughs> finishing the book this time uh, because I was reading from a copy that I'd never read from before and it was weird. It had typos in it. I was all kinds of fucked up. Um, but we made it to the end. We did. And there's a few important notes I need to give before we start. This. Okay, go ahead, please. Uh, one, I need everyone to know that not until Sarah began doing her intro did I notice that they looked like they just stepped right out of some badass RPG character maker because <laughs> they have an undercut on both sides now, which I noticed. But then I saw their head turn and they have like this badass, like the rest of their hair is like in this badass single braids. So they look like they're about to pull out a gun and pistol whip a bitch. <laughs> Thank you. It's such a compliment. <laughs> Second of all, I need everyone to know that COVID round three is awful. 
Oh my god, I completely it, forgot you got COVID for the third time. Yes, um, if you didn't have an intro, I was going to start, I was going to say, give me the intro, because I was going to start with, <laughs> hey, guess what, you expected Sarah, but it's me, Emmy. I have another story to tell you all about my health problems. It lasted almost two weeks this time. Oh my god, and you're fully vaccinated. Yes, I'm fully vaccinated. Steffi like, and I, Steffi started after me because I was the one that had it first. And so she mm-hmm. took longer to recover, but only because yeah, so she started feeling better later. But I had it twice. Most of the bad from the first two times came after. the. It was basically the long COVID effects. This time, the actual illness was awful. I had an entire day where I was just delirious from fever. Debbie and I both can't, like, even now, I don't know if it's still a problem for her, but even for me still, just sweat profusely through the night, even if it's cold. Um, Neither of us could, like, breathe. We actually had to stop watching TikTok completely because we tried to watch TikTok one night uh, Uh when we were most of the way through it. And it made us cough so bad that Steffi got sick from laughing. Oh my god. That sounds awful. It was a real bad time. We couldn't, like, do anything. Mm -hmm. I couldn't reach because Steffi got me Nona the Ninth, which, for Mm -hmm. those of you who may not be aware, is the third book in the series, beginning with Gideon the Ninth, a book I heavily recommended. In yeah. our early days. Uh, and I could not read it. And I started reading I started reading it when I got it. And then I just continued reading it yesterday because my brain was not in a place to process a book of that level. <laughs> um it was it, it was a real bad time and I couldn't go to work. Yeah. I had to go get because I took a test and I was positive. And I called my work and they're like, no, no, you have to have an official test. So I went to CVS to get an official test. That's fucked up. I know. And the next day, CVS gets back to me and they're like, oh, yeah, your uh, your swab wasn't with the test. And I'm like, how how is my swab not with the... I literally yeah. put the stuff in the bag and put it in the drop box. How is it? So then I had to go to another CVS and do another test. Oh, my God. You'd be swabbed three times? Four times, because I actually did a test that came back as negative uh, first. Mm. <clears throat> because it start, the way it actually started for me was one of the worst sore throats I ever had. It felt like somebody had just scraped the skin off of the inside of my throat. Swallowing was a miserable experience. And when I started oh. coughing, it was real bad. But the day that I had the sore throat... I tested, but didn't test positive. So I had to do it four times. Oh my God. That is awful. But you definitely, like you, I can only imagine how bad that experience would have been if you weren't vaccinated. Oh yeah. Cause the new variants are really, really bad. Um, and one of the worst parts is you can get reinfected. 
up uh, a few mm. weeks after. So, and I got, this is one of the reasons I tried so hard to get rem- a remote job because I'm working in an office now and I know people were sick. I didn't know anyone had COVID, but I did notice people were sick before I got it. And so I was yeah. like, there it is. And when I came back, they told me that a few other people had been out with COVID as well. Um, so I definitely got it there. I actually have a job interview tomorrow now to try and get a remote job because I'm like, I'm not fucking That's with great. this. I'm so glad. <laughs> Many hours later. This is the dumbest fucking <laughs> podcast intro. I'm going to have to cut so much. <laughs> you can cut out all of the Kroger stuff if you want, this is, but honestly. We're at 22 <laughs> minutes of intro right now. This. <laughs> yeah, and? <laughs> I'm going to do like a super cut of this conversation we've been having. Yeah. Oh my God. But anyway... Uh, do you want to talk about the book? Yes, and I actually have something to start with before we get into the book. Okay, itself. go ahead. So I did some more research based on uh, our question from last time regarding where this book takes place. Okay, yeah. Please tell me. Am I wrong? Was I incorrect that's about a, where it takes place? That's a great question. <laughs> um, so. One of the things that helped is in one of these chapters, uh, R goes into a room with Julie and there's a bunch of phones on the walls that are labeled. One of them is Goldman Dome. One of them uh-huh. is AIG Field. And then another is Lehman Field. So mm-hmm. I was like, perfect. This is so many locations that it gives me a lot of reference points to look this up. So I did. First of all, City Field in New York is a baseball field where the Mets play. Not a football field, which is, it's a football what stadium. The stadium that is, yeah. Is in this book. And that stadium, that field wasn't even built until like 2008. I cannot find any other city stadium in existence. Okay. So then I looked up AIG. I can't find an AIG stadium. So I look up Goldman Dome. Cannot find a Goldman Dome. This leads me to believe that he just made up names for stadiums. Okay. Yes. So I looked up Lehman Field and that led me to an airfield in Oregon that is directly between Portland and Mount Hood, the government camp. Okay. So... If Lemon Field is a legitimate thing and not just another name he picked and it just so happens to correlate with the place, it mm-hmm. would make sense that this takes place in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Isaac Marion is from Seattle. So this is... So... It's possible that... And it wouldn't... It would make kind of sense if that is the case... Because having a government military camp nearby would be a good reason this area might have had better fortification and managed to make little colonies. Um, But, and considering there's a large city nearby, it being near Portland also makes sense. 
But aside from that, I, I got nothing. I could not find anything. Okay. I am going to read The Burning World after this. So, and I, there is a part in the, like, spoilers for The Burning World if you plan on reading it. But there's a part where they get in a plane and they fly away to somewhere else to escape something, something, something. Um, and they do talk a lot about locations, obviously, when they're in the plane and they're flying because they're talking about where they're going to go. Um, so if they discuss like where they are and like where they're going to go from there, I'll let you know, because I feel like that's probably where I got my inclination as to where it takes place from, because I've read the burning world before. It's just been a long time, uh, like five or six years at this point. It came out in 2017, I think. So like five years since I read it. So, but I'll let you know if, uh, if it tells us exactly where it is, but you know. I think the Pacific Northwest is a pretty safe bet. It does rain a lot in this book. And yes. Isaac Marion being from the Pacific Northwest, it does make sense that he'd make it take place there. I A lot of my writing takes place in the Midwest because that's where we're from. And he also mentions the forest surrounding the areas a lot. Yes. And Pacific mm-hmm. Northwest is a very yeah densely forested area. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I'll, if it mentions that in the burning world, I'll let you know. Um, but, oh my God. Oh my God. I just remembered before we talk about the book, we're going to talk about a different book briefly here. Do you remember when we were reading Maximum Ride? And there was a part where you joked about Max and Ella dating each other. And I had a very strong reaction to that and i was like no 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 that cannot happen i do remember well, this and hold on before you say this yes apologies to everyone for this delayed episode covid oh yeah <laughs> uh, covid yeah <laughs> and i say that because when you when you mentioned that it made me remember that you had planned to tell me this when we initially planned to record it yes is, we've had a hard time <laughs> recording this episode we have it's been a lot Life has been going on, but hopefully we'll be back on track here going forward. Um, Okay. I had a very strong reaction to you saying that Ella and Max should date each other. They're right around the same age. Ella's like 13 and Max is 14. And um, I was like, no, 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 no. They cannot. They cannot date each other. Um, We would have found out the reason why in book three, but we will not be reading book three. So I'm going to reveal to you why. Do you have a guess before I tell you why they cannot date each other? Wait, we didn't. I thought we read book three. No, we only read books one and two. Oh, wow. I have three of the books. I just quit before we got there. Okay. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Ella works for the Institute. No. Or the school. Ella? Yeah. Ella and Max are sisters. sisters. Yes. (laughs) Dr. Martinez is Max's mother. I don't know why. As soon as you said Ella and Max, my brain figured it out. (laughs) Oh, wow. The completely random person that Max spotted and saved from some bullies and then went and stayed at her house. And Max talked all about how much she wished was her mom. That's her mom. Okay, I gotta say, it's disappointing that that part wasn't in the story yet, because honestly, that is probably the only 
I'm sure reading it, it would have been horribly, horribly done. But like, yeah, that is no, the only bad. clever thing in that series. And it's not even clever. I remember reading it at the time and being like, what? It's like, Why? it's one of those things, I think, where on a conceptual level, I like it. Like that she stumbles mm-hmm. into her real family without ever knowing. Yes. But uh, I just know execution-wise, it would have been absolutely horrible. <laughs> well, yeah, because James Patterson doesn't do reveals very well. Yeah, just fucking those books. Yeah, so Jeb, Jeb is Max's dad, and uh, Dr. Martinez Valencia, I believe her name is, is her mom. Um, Ari and Max are half-siblings. Dr. Martinez is not Ari's mom. There is a different... And as far as I remember, Dr. Martinez did at some point work for the school. And I think that's supposed to be like the weird like reason why she didn't freak out, react extremely violently to Max having wings. She was just like, oh, my God, like they actually did it, basically. But I think that does mean that Dr. Martinez actually gave birth to Max and allowed her to be experimented on while she was in the womb. There are so many ethical <laughs> complications to Jeb just going around and impregnating women to have yeah. experiment babies with. Like, <laughs> Anyway, I just really wanted to tell you that because we spent so long with you being like, what is it? What's the problem? And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I just want to tell you that I lost my shit last night when I was reading Nona the Ninth. Because Uh there was a Twilight reference. Many hours later, again. We added another 10 minutes on after you said that we had been doing the intro for 22 minutes. This is the problem that happens when we don't record for too long. Is that there's too much to pack. I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to like cut this into a bonus episode and be like, guys, do you want like a random life update? Here you go. Yeah, honestly. Or just, like, I, I'll give you full permission to just kind of cut out anything you're listening to and you're like, no. <laughs> nah. Nah. I don't really care. Anyway, so shall we get into the book? Let's get into the book. So when we last left off, R was, um, he was in turmoil. <laughs> he had just murdered a man. Julie had tried to kiss him again. So he showed her Perry's book, which, um you know, kind of shows that he ate Perry, but Julie chose to forgive him. So um, where we pick up now in chapter 17, R is about to confess to eating the guard when the lights in the stadium all turn on and the Jumbotron lights up to show a warning that there's been a zombie breach. Um, Julie hurries R inside where he explains to both girls that the guard he killed was probably going to kill him first. Um, Julie explains the entire stadium is going to go on lockdown for who knows how long and that even she doesn't know what they're supposed to do next. I, I'm kind of offended by the fact that you said the Jumbotron lit up revealing that there's a zombie breach and left out the fact that somebody put in the effort of animating an entire sequence <laughs> of football players tackling zombies. <laughs> As the alert. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like they're they have they have a research and design part department <laughs> at in, in City Stadium that like makes this animation apparently. Uh to like indicate to people who like can't read that 
There's been a zombie breach. I legit, when I saw that, I was like, somebody had to do that in their early days before they stopped giving a fuck. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or, alternatively, Grigio insisted that they make this. It became his weird passion project. (laughs) He was like, look... This is my artistic vision. This is what Grigio did when he was drunk. Yes. This is the uh, commercial episode of Community where the Dean goes off the deep end and wanted to make a commercial that he spent three and a half weeks and a million dollars on only for the commercial to be really shitty. Um, So the night wears on and eventually Julie and Nora fall asleep while R stares at the ceiling and like... He slowly begins to piece together the words on it. And he's like, I mean, I wish I could be happy about this, but this is really not the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, at some point, the phone in the house rings and Julie wakes up to answer it. R follows and to both their surprise, it's M on the other end calling from outside the stadium. Julie explains that landlines are basically like long range walkie talkies at this point. Um, because, like, they have the phones still working in, like, the suburbs outside the city, just so that people who are going out there have, like, a way to call back into the city. But, like, the fact that M managed to call specifically this phone is so funny. Like, it had to be, the phone number had to be, like, written down near that phone, right? Like, oh, yeah. There's no way that Wait. he could just be, like, he could just hit random stuff and then manage to call Julie. Well, no, because they can't read. Yeah. I don't know. Well, maybe M can, because we know that when they, when they see them again, M is, like, further along in, like, becoming a human again. So maybe he's already, like, gotten to that point. That's true. He all, it also might be a system where the phones are auto set to call those specific phones when you yeah because julie's dad it is like julie's dad is basically the leader of the whole stadium and they have like a ton of phones in the room so that's why when julie picks it up she knows that it's coming from a phone outside the city because she's like oh this line is only for the people who are outside the city um, so that's probably it where he just kind of picked it up and it like called, but I remember, I don't know. I'm not here to pick apart the nitty gritty details. Well, cause I know, I think she dialed when she used the phone. Yeah. I think what might be the case here, because when they did it, they were in a different area. They were in the suburbs that nobody goes to that were already mm-hmm. abandoned Whereas M used one of the phones in the actual city that they often go into to raid. So it might be that she had, she couldn't just pick up the phone and use it because it hadn't been set up to actually do that. Maybe. Or Isaac Marion didn't think about it that much. Yeah. Also possible. Uh, so R follows, uh, blah, 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 I already said that. He explains that more and more dead are starting to change, but whatever is happening with R and Julie is spreading like the opposite of a plague. Um, R asks Julie, uh, if she'd leave the city. I, I typed it wrong. And because I always point out your typos, I will say, I wrote, R asks Julie if he'd leave the city with her. Julie, will I leave the city with you? (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> and after some sh- some thought she agrees he's basically like 
they need us to get shit going. Will you go with me? And she's like, you know what? Sure. <laughs> like, I got nothing else here. Let's go. So Julie and R ask M to wait for them on the outside so they have time to escape the stadium's lockdown. And M tells them to hurry the fuck up. <laughs> um, R and Julie stay up for most of the night, but eventually R drifts off into a dream where he's floating down a river with several comforting memories following after him. Pad Thai and Perry's book reminding him of happier moments until the river's current picks up and he hears the sound of a waterfall. I love the way that we like symbolically build towards conflict in this book throughout so much of it. It's all just like internal narrative where R it's basically like R gets a feeling in his gut that something bad is going to happen, but it manifests in these like prophetic dreams that he has um, about how like, yeah, shit's about to go down. Basically. Like we can't just, we can't just gently drift down the river anymore. We're about to go plunging over a waterfall. And people might ask, but how does he know? And why is he bellaing over here? <laughs> and the answer is because it actually makes more sense in this book because the whole concept going on here is that he essentially has a collective consciousness that's formed yeah. inside him from the multitudes of human brains that he has eaten and mm -hmm. made part of himself. And yeah. the whole thing with the plague seems to be that it's part of a unified consciousness for humanity. Yeah. So it makes a lot and more sense in this context. And not to mention, so much of R's dreams just boil down to him having a bad feeling or him processing thoughts and emotions, whereas Bella's were straight up clairvoyance that is never explained. Like, at least in this, we can be like, well, R is a supernatural creature, and also so much of this is just him over-processing the things that he's thinking about. But, you know, whatever. Um, so Julie, yeah, whatever. Um, Julie wakes up and they chat for a little bit before Rosso comes over the intercom to announce a door to door search of every building in the stadium and that everyone needs to exit their homes while the search is ongoing. Julie wakes Nora up and asks her if she knows any sneaky exits they can take to escape, hastily explaining that they heard from M and the end of days might actually be coming to an end. Uh, Julie's dad suddenly shows up and Julie tries to stall him while Nora reapplies his makeup. She hilariously tells her dad that they're fucking like, she's like, don't go in there. Nora and Archie are fucking. And the general bluntly tells them to stop fucking right now. There is a zombie invasion going on. Um, Julie's dad grills R with a bunch of questions before revealing he's noticed R is wearing makeup and stabbing him through the shoulder. Um, R also gets a couple of questions, like, semi-wrong. Like, he doesn't know the name of Goldman Dome. He forgot. And so he calls it Goldman Field. And Grigio's like, Her, that's suspicious. So Grigio pulls a gun on R and proceeds to have a screaming match with Julie over her, bringing R into the city. She tries to explain that the dead are changing, but he doesn't believe her and is a second away from shooting R in the face when Julie stabs her father in the hand and he drops the gun, which proceeds to hilariously fire over and over again as it hits the floor. It literally bouncy balls ac around the room firing <laughs> off shots. 
it's and like how nobody managed to get shot while this is happening like it empties the clip shooting so many times i don't know what kind of gun he's using i can't imagine it's a six shooter because that would be stupid um but anyway so nora snatches and reloads the gun with a magazine she pulls out of her purse uh it's definitely a pistol not a not a revolver yeah uh holding grigio in place so r and julie can flee um (laughs) i love it it's like even in the depth of deadly serious moments he's like it'll be really funny a gun bouncing around the room firing randomly that seems really funny it was so dumb i just like i it was honestly that's that was probably the dumbest thing that's happened in this book and it just made me laugh so hard as i was reading it I was like, oh, so it falls. I can understand it misfiring once when it like falls on the floor, but it, it must be an automatic. Guys, guns don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it has to be somehow. Like, well, there's automatic guns pistols. Don't just do that. Because yeah, it it, oh. it it can't cock itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just like, buddy, <laughs> it doesn't do that. So Julie and R flee through the stadium, zigzagging in haphazardous directions until they run up some stairs and reach a dead end of an emergency exit, which leads out to an eight-story drop. Um, Rosso catches up with them and begs Julie not to leave because she's all her father has left. Like, he's genuinely, like, trying to reason with her. But Julie says her dad has been dead for a long time. Just not in the same way that R is. So R grabs Julie and backs out the door, falling with her wrapped up in his arms so she isn't hurt when they hit the ground. In the, I actually like it better the way they do it in the movie because they land in a fountain. And there's this really cool cinematic sequence of R like hitting the bottom of the fountain and like the water. It's just really cool. But anyway, <laughs> they get up and run through the streets trying to escape the pursuant military forces only to come face to face with a horde of hundreds of zombies, chief amongst them being M. Uh, Rosso catches up, but Julie convinces him to turn back. Uh, he likely also flees because he and his men are like wildly outnumbered. Yeah, they got like number of zombies. two Jeep Wranglers. <laughs> yeah, and there's just a, a horde of hundreds of zombies that have all like taken Julie and R like into their ranks. Um... I will the, the, the chat. Go ahead. Say it, it lost me for a second when they backed out the window because I'm like, I know he's a zombie and he doesn't get hurt, but the amount of damage that would be done yeah. from all because he like bounces off a bunch of stuff and everything. Yeah. But it then goes on to explain as they're running that all of his wounds are like he can feel his flat like his muscles and bones knitting themselves back together as they're moving and like forcing themselves into alignment yeah which is cool i thought i guess i mistakenly thought that like when they got wounded it didn't heal it just kind of also didn't hurt them that like well, that, no, that is how it works. Yeah. That's, but that's the thing is it doesn't hurt him, but it's like, you still need your parts to work. Like if a zombie yeah. had its legs broken at both shins, they wouldn't be able to run anymore, even if it doesn't hurt them. But it's, 
they don't knit themselves back together the way R is doing, which is part of what's showing that he's okay. I get it now. It's like a it's like a supernatural thing. Okay. Yeah. Because I was like, I this I was like, I remember reading that and being like, but I thought when they got hurt, it just kind of like lingered. Because like M had all those bullet wounds all over him that they talked about like not being a huge deal because like it doesn't like they don't bleed out or anything like that. But like it didn't heal. Anyway, I get it now. Um, but the chapter ends with a really, really great quote that I took a note of here. Um, it said, deep under our feet earth holds its molten breath while the bones of countless generations watch us and wait. And I just love that thought of like, you think about the people of the past and the hopes they have for the future. And like the idea that they are watching what is happening to the earth at this point, And they're seeing how far humankind has fallen. But now it's like, Oh, my God, are they going to fix it? Are they going to do it? Are they going to actually, like, is life going to continue? And I just I just really liked that thought. I just want to see some Dark Age peasants with only knowledge <laughs> of the Catholic Church's teachings having to witness this and see what's going on. Being like, what the fuck is going on up there? <laughs> That's the end of chapter 17. Chapter 18. Julie and R meet up with the Zombo Brigade, and Julie is more nervous than before, but R speaks to the Zomboys and Zomgirls and lets them know what's up. They gotta protect the J-Dog. The two sit down, (laughs) and R asks Julie why she came along, because it's super dangerous for her there, and she's like, well, I like you. And then she wipes some of her blood on him and calls it even for when he wiped her blood, his blood on her. Beautiful. Uh, R begins to feel his eyes burn again. And this time he feels a tear run down his face for the first time since he began realiving. He stands up because he feels very uncomfortable and does not want Julie to see him crying and tells everyone that they're going to go back to the airport but then someone runs up and tells him, or and talks to him, and it turns out a bunch of bonies have been flown in and they are out for blood, uh, as well yeah. as Black Zombo Icker, meaning they are killing the zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are just going after anyone that wants to side with R and M. And isn't abiding by the normal eat people rules. Uh, So with that news, they start to spill out of the forest and run down all the good little zombos. And M says that Kill Team 6 will lure the bonies into the city and take them and, and then hide in buildings and let the dome security take care of the mutual enemy while R and J Dog go in the opposite direction. Are, are you okay? Yeah, I'm good. Just keep going. <laughs> uh, and there's a really good quote in this part. And it's uh, R watching everything going on and he starts to hear the voices in him talking. Something unknown to us. Something we've never seen. Memory can't overtake the present. History has its limits. 
Are we all just dark age doctors swearing by our leeches? We crave a greater science. We want to be proven wrong. Uh, and that's a, that's a really good quote. Memory can't overtake the present. History has its limits. And you think of that in the context of what the Bonies always say. If this is how it is, this is how it's always been, this is how it'll always be. And basically it's saying... What has happened before does not dictate what comes next. It's always yeah. possible to make choices and to change things. History doesn't have power over what you choose to do now. Yeah. Fucking love it. Also, are we all yeah. just Dark oh, Age yeah. doctors swearing by our leeches? Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. <clears throat> So R hears the fights fighting starting in the distance as they look for a place to hide amongst a spattering of brick and steel towers. Uh, but he hesitates for reasons that he can't quite figure out. And the logic behind his preternatural sense of unease is obvious once a bony smashes a window and climbs out a building J-Dog is trying to open and starts attacking her. And as R tries to wrestle it off J-Dog, the bony starts screaming in his head again. Stop. Stop. We are the sum of everything. You will become us. We will win. Always have. Always. And then our smashes into pieces. And at that point, the bony unleashes some new unholy screech. And R wonders if it's the last traces of whatever soul had inhabited the bones dying. And then the faces of bonies start to fill all the windows around them. And J-Dog flips her shit over them holding a grudge, only to realize that the Bonies are actually scared of them, much to Perry's amusement. So R hears Perry in his head going, look at me, babe. Look at R's face and read it there. It's not a grudge. These creatures are far too pragmatic to care about revenge. They're on to you. It's not because you started this scuffle. It's because they know you're going to finish it. Ah! <laughs> ah! Yeah. It's good. It's good. It's so good. Oh my god. So, oh god. As a horde of bonies, called by the dying gasp of their bone town pal, <laughs> make their bone way towards. <laughs> Sarah. I don't know what came over you when you were writing this summary, but. <laughs> oh my god. And they make their way Go on. towards R and J Dog. J Dog grabs R. Why isn't it J Dog? Why, why isn't it? Why isn't it J Dog? Where did the J Dog come from? My brain it just—that's the word it decided on. It okay. just said it, and I wrote it. Uh, so she grabs R and starts pulling him towards the group. And as it turns out, Mercy is nearby, which is the name for the Mercedes that they used before. Uh, Though for some reason they kept an E between the C and Y, even though Mercy without that extra E is a word already. Weird. Uh, but it turns out this is the area where Grigio met with J-Dog before, and she plans to drive them back into the stadium, believing that Rosie is not as blind as her father and will help them. So as they speed towards safety... R wonders at the number of the bonies, knowing that there's no actual accounting for the size 
given the decomposition and transformation rates of normal zombies, there's just no reason. Mm-hmm. Even there with should be this many of them. Yeah, even with bonies coming in from other areas, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so J Dog starts getting scared, but R tells her to keep moving. And they get to the stadium, and J Dog screams for Rosie to let them in, and he actually does have the soldier stand down, quippily asking J Dog if she's already finished saving the world. Uh, Rosie resists a bit when asked to let them in, but decides to trust. Back inside, Nora's image is on the Jumbotron, stating that she is wanted for armed assault and is to be arrested on site. Ignoring the fact that she didn't actually assault anyone, Julie stabbed her dad. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, J-Dog says they'll need her and leads R up to the old VIP suites where she thinks Nora is likely hiding. Sure enough, they find her there drinking wine from 1980, <laughs> I believe. Uh, yeah. As they discuss what to do, the Jumbotron goes blank, and Grigio speaks over the stadium PA, telling J-Dog what her tan- that her tantrum is over, and that he won't let her become her mother. He tells her that <laughs> he can... I know, he's a fucking dick. <laughs> he tells her that he can see where she is, and to wait, because he is going to come for her and set the world right. Whatever the fuck that means. R suggests that they go to the roof, which confuses J-Dog because she's like, you've never been there. And he's like, yes, I have. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so they climb up and they see the horde of bonies below vastly outnumber their own forces. And R imagines Grigio mocking them at the site. And he calls out to Perry for help, but there's no answer. J-Dog says that she thinks she knows how the plague started. The collective soul of humanity was crushed beneath the weight of its hate and greed until it scraped the bottom of the universe, making a hole through which something dark seeped in. She asks R what they're supposed to do, and he has a moment of cosmic awe as he looks at her and sees the culmination of human history in her. (laughs) <laughs> just like genetically get you a man who looks at you the way that R looks at Julie <laughs> and sees her as the culmination of human history I mean like when you think about it he's not wrong because all of human history if if like this whole change and this revolution that the zombies are about to have is starting with them it's like the culmination of everything that has ever happened has led to this one point, and now this mass change is going to happen. So, like, I mean, honestly, yeah, he's right. She is the culmination of human history because she's about to set, like, Grigio just said he's going to set the world right, but he's wrong. Julie's going to set the world right by being able to love. Actually, it seems like she's about to set the world better. Uh, honestly, Yeah. So when she keeps asking what to do, R kisses her. As they kiss, they both, and it does not seem like this is in a metaphor, they both literally push down whatever the darkness is inside R. Like, he can feel something rising up inside him, and he forces it down. And Julie apparently does the same thing. Do not ask me how this works. I don't know. It's, ma- it's magic. Look, I... 
I was gonna say it's magic. We're just gonna we're gonna say it. It's magic. I'm just saying, don't ask me for the technicalities. I don't I don't quite understand. I don't uh, know. <laughs> so they break apart as a as R feels an aching pain in his eyes, and he looks at J dogs and sees them change to the eyes of a zombo, then change again really quickly and take on a golden color. And at that moment, there is a new scent that R detects from both of them, which is similar but different from the scent of life that zombies can smell and it just rushes out of them and into the world around them like a wave like an emp pulse and as j-dog tries to understand what happened r sees that all the bonies are now staring directly at them (sighs) this is such there's so much happening in this chapter i have so much description <laughs> yes oh yeah it's it's the it's the like climax three pages long yeah it's four it's like three and a half pages long so yeah grigio screams for j-dog and has appeared at the top of the hatch where nora has now been handcuffed i'm honestly really curious how the fuck he managed to like half climb out of the hatch take her down and handcuff her honestly that's one of my biggest questions from this it's like how did he manage this yeah how did you do that <laughs> Rosie climbs up behind him and Grigio demands that he shoot R and Julie. And Rosie refuses, saying they aren't infected. Technically, he says, she's not infected. I don't even think he's infected anymore. Yeah. Um, So the two argue and Grigio finally draws his own pistol to shoot, at which point Rosie tries to wrestle it from him and gets his wrist broken. Poor Rosie. Poor Rosie. So laying on the ground, he takes out his knife and stabs Grigio through the ankle. Uh, So he, Grigio falls and just slides down the roof until he's dangling off the edge because it's like a dome shape, kind of. And so he's just dangling off the edge by his hands. And then they just see a bony hand reach up on top of his and like claw into it. And then a bony just claws up on top of the roof grabs Grigio under the arms picks him up sets him down in front of him and Grigio does not resist at all as the bony literally starts eating him just right there just and not like yep he starts biting into his shoulder and his neck and not like ravenously like hungry like meticulous (laughs) yes R says it's almost sensual how slowly the bony starts eating him. It like that part, like, I know this is a horror book, but like that part more than anything else made me go, Oh, yeah, it's weird. Oh, oh. okay. So J dog shouts for Rosie to shoot the bony before running and grabbing Nora's gun herself. Grigio apologizes to date to J dog who calls for her dad to fight, but he just tells her no. Uh, she shoots the bony in the skull and it explodes into dust and topples over the edge with her dad. And as he falls, his flesh rips away from his skin or from his bones and he turns into a bony and then just shatters into fragments and dust once they hit the ground. That more than anything else, like, I feel like that really surmises... Oh, that really summarizes the way that R has been like 
theorizing about the bonies and the zombies like throughout the entire book where he's like he get he gets to the point when they're in the bar where he's like oh the bonies are zombies but like who have been sapped of every single last drop of humanity that they have and you can like because like at the beginning i remember r was like oh the bonies must just be like zombies who have existed for a while so like they've basically like rotted away until they're nothing but just like bones and like flesh right but to see grigio go through the zombie transformation as he's falling but immediately become a bony is like no he was right like this is literally just like if you once you have been sapped of what makes you human you don't become a regular zombie anymore. That's when you lose it all and become a bony. And Julie was right when she said her dad had been dead for a long time. And this is evidence of that. All that was left in him was the physical processes of being alive. He wasn't actually like living. He wasn't actually functioning as a person. He was just like, he was breathing and his heart was beating and that was it. And it's really sad because... He is the person that was put in charge of all of these people. And his own emotional damage and blindness to the world meant that everybody under his command had to suffer. Yeah. He was an obstacle to all of them finding even a shred of a better life in this hell of a world that they were stuck in. Yeah, because all he gave a shit about was breathing and your heart beating. Like, that was liter- that was the extent of it. That's all he cared about. And everything beyond that, because civilization doesn't find prosperity... If all you have is people who are alive. We talked about this in a very early episode that luxury is the sign of a um, prosperous society. Um, And one of the surest signs that they do not have anything like that is that nobody reads anymore. Um, I mean, everything else as well, but nobody even reads. Nobody even takes the time to do one of the most basic, like to consume one of the most basic forms of entertainment. They don't read. Um, they barely listen to music. I mean, Julie has like an iPod or something and she's like the only person who does. No, Julie doesn't have an iPod in this. She does in the movie, um, which I liked. It was it was cool um, that she had an iPad while I iPod while R just had his records. It was cute. Anyway, um, so like what he was holding them back from was because like they don't have a reason to want to survive beyond just like living and breathing because their life sucks and he was facilitating that by refusing to allow anyone to find any form of happiness and it's just evident here that that's all he ever was and it's it's even more sad because there's somebody that it's so clear that rosie was the person that should have been leading people all along because he has all of the strengths that grigio does and that really is only the ability to make yeah. defense and military decisions, but also still has his humanity. And it's it's 
almost like it's also Rosie's fault. It's all like this because he was so it it's Rosie's humanity that stopped him from protecting everyone else from Grigio's lack of humanity because he still saw him as his old friend and wanted to believe in him when really he should have stepped in and gotten rid of Grigio a long time ago (laughs) to help everybody You know, I mean, if you look at it, the only people who are still trying to reason with Grigio are Rosso and Julie. And everybody else just kind of, like, exists in the same space as Grigio because... And, like, Julie knows, but at the same time, she still wants to believe that he's her dad who, like, took care of the plant back in their old house. But he's not anymore. And Rosso still wants to believe that he's his old military buddy, but he's not. And they're the last, it's like they're the last things that are keeping him alive. Literally, it's like they're his life support. And they're the only, like, it's pulling the plug on on Grigio's life support is taking those two away from him and letting him fade into nothing. And that's what happened here is as soon, because he still had Rosie up until Rosie yes. wrestled, tried to wrestle the gun from him. And at that point, that's when he gave up. Yeah. Because it's like, Julie already turned on him. Once Rosie does it, what does he have? <laughs> Nothing. And even then, it's like, it's again, it's the life support metaphor is exacting. It's not like Grigio was only holding on because those two existed. It's like those two existing was the only thing keeping him alive. Like, he was just a vegetable. He was nothing. He was just a person who was walking and talking, but there was nothing left inside of him, you know? And so I just don't I just don't want it to seem like he's not supposed to be sympathetic in these final moments. You're supposed to realize, no, there's nothing left. He's even further gone than Perry was. No, he it isn't sympathetic. It's pathetic. Yes. And it's like even like he apologizes to Julie at the end. But it's not a moment where you go, I'm glad he saw that he was wrong. It's a moment where you read it and you say, it's too that <laughs> is a sad and pathetic excuse for make, trying to make up for what you've done. Yeah. It, you He got what he deserved. The people that had to watch him go through it that had cared for him once were the ones punished by having to watch him go through it. Exactly. Like, no, the only... Like, Rosie and Julie are the only ones hurting there. Grigio's not in pain. Grigio doesn't give a shit when he dies. He's done. You know? <laughs> he's done. It's almost like he's glad it's... It, I don't even want to say he's glad it's happening. It's not like Perry who was glad to go because he was finally going to be free of suffering. Because Grigio wasn't suffering. He was just nothing. He was just a shell. He's just... That's why he doesn't fight. He just had to stop trying. Yes. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so the others apologize to J-Dog, but she isn't really dealing with the weight of the grief yet. And R and Rosie get a proper introduction with Rosie admitting that he has no idea why, but he is really thrilled to know R. Yeah. Um, so the group agrees they need to have a meeting about what exactly happened before J-Dog notices that R is bleeding. R now begins to realize that he's bleeding from a lot of old wounds 
and that he's in quite a bit of pain. J-Dog gets excited over our seeming <laughs> aliveness and kisses him again, at which point it is heavily insinuated that R gets a boner, much to J-Dog's entertainment. Because she literally, like, tackles him and is on top of him as they kiss. And he's like, and I feel blood rushing to every part of my body. And then J-Dog pulls away and, like, looks down between them. Down. And just ra- looks back up at him with, like, a mischievous smile. <laughs> So, like, okay, so here's the thing. I highly value sex and sexuality as a key part of the human existence, okay? So, (laughs) I know that we had that part earlier where R was talking about how his dick doesn't work, and he views that as being highly symbolic of the fact that he just doesn't experience love anymore, but he wishes he could. And, like sexuality being key to julie's experience of romantic love it makes it a lovely moment where he's like oh my god my dick works therefore i am giving my i am getting my symbolic second chance at experiencing love however boners are funny yeah it is hilarious (laughs) like it is very symbolic but hilarious Like, I I get it, and I'm happy, and it's beautiful, but also, like, R being like, oh, my dick works. It's just like... I think that makes it (laughs) a very good representation of humanity, though. Yeah, it does. It's often not a case that something is just this ethereally beautiful concept that is, like, almost divinely inspired. It's human existence is weird. And funny and and awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's... great. And it's like, it's the fact that he can have this like funny, dumb, like he's probably going to be excited the first time he goes to shit too. He's going to be like, oh my God, I did it. I took a shit. Like, and that's great. I love it. (laughs) What? I do not want to imagine what the first shit of a post zombie (laughs) experience is like. That's kind of terrifying. (laughs) But still, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, my God, my body's doing all those. Like, the first time he, like, he's going to have all these experiences that, like, we are, like, about. But, like, you know, he's going to sweat, you know? He's going to have, like, drool come out of the side of his mouth. He's going to have snot come out of his nose. And he's going to be like, oh, my God. Do you think Julie's going to, like, make him masturbate a few times to, like, get the pipes going and make sure nothing goes in there before she, like, actually has sex with him? (laughs) Just like so, so when you get a vasectomy, they tell you that like about a week after you um, have the vasectomy done, the first time you come, there's probably going to be a little bit of blood in your cum because they have just like sealed off your pipes and they they either burned or clipped it, and it's going to cause a little blood to be in your pipes. And so the first time you ejaculate ideally you're going to not be ejaculating inside of someone because there's going to be blood in your semen and that is all i can think about with r is julie being like you got to clear out the pipes there's probably like rot inside yeah of your that's dick. what i'm you thinking gotta, <laughs> you gotta get that out before need, we have sex with i each need other. to know what this magic pulse did did it completely cleanse his body <laughs> or is there some shit that's got to be worked out in there Isaac he's Marion. probably gonna throw up a lot. He's probably gonna throw up a lot Isaac, because he's got all that ugh inside of him. Isaac Marion, I need you to listen to this podcast, and I need <laughs> you 
to come to Twitter or email us and tell us what exactly this pulse did to R's body. Yes. What did it do? How how did it happen? I, just, I need Look, to know. This is the, we're just, we just have to give this the same level of scrutiny that we gave to the baby making shit in Twilight. Because if we don't, then we are being biased because this book is good. And so we're like, eh, whatever. It's the, th- the thing is, when a book is good, you give it more leeway <laughs> with some weird parts. Yeah. And here's the thing. Nothing about this is... In Twilight, it didn't just, it just didn't make any fucking sense. It was self-contradictory. Nothing here is yes. self-contradictory, but I still want to know. I still want to understand the mechanics of this. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, anyways, Perry returns to R's mind one more time to say goodbye and apologize for not responding to R during the battle, but that he was fighting his own battle. He says that he's ready to actually deal with whatever existence comes next and not fuck it up this time. And I just really want to know what the fuck he was doing during that battle. Because there's not like... There's no implication from anything he Mm -hmm. says before or at this point of what was happening with Perry's soul in this time. If I had to give... Oh, go ahead. It's just like, there's, it's, it's like I could theorize, but there's not, there's not a clear description I can point to and Mm -hmm. say, so this is a good idea of what might have been happening. It's just kind of like, he was battling. So, (laughs) yeah, my theory has always been that Perry was wrestling with letting go fully and walking away because even though he has like symbolically handed over the reins of his life with Julie to R cause he's said multiple times, like you got to take care of her. Now you got to be good to her. He's still been there. Like he's still lingered. And as this, as R's transformation is like fully taking hold, I can only imagine that Perry has a sense of like, okay, I really need to, I really need to go. Uh, like, I really need to let go of this. And this, I really need to be done. Because, like, until now, he's still just been this zombie that he's been assisting and piloting, basically, through everything that's been going on. But now R is, like, he's speaking more, he's reading. And at this point, he's now, like, I I don't want to say he's fully human because... If you read on further in the series, he's still going through the change. Like, his body is still learning how to be alive again. But, like, at this point, he can talk, he can walk, he can breathe, he can kiss, you know, he can love. And there's no more need for Perry. Like, Perry doesn't need to be there to give him reminders. And so it's like, until now, it's like Perry was making excuses as to why he needed to stick around. And, like, being like, well, I got to be there to, like, look out for R and, like, give him advice and show him what needs to be done. But at this point, he doesn't. R has fully realized who he is and he's ready to take on this next step in life. And so this this personal battle that Perry was fighting, um, and I imagine that he probably didn't tell R what he was doing because he knew that R might still try to cling to some part of Perry because R felt like he needed Perry, too. He spent this whole book, like, he literally was shouting out for Perry 
in the middle of the battle being like, I need your help. What am I supposed to do? But, you know, if Perry knows that he needs to let go and also knows that R will still want him to be there as his crutch, then, you know, maybe he just doesn't say anything and maybe he just goes. And this is just a theory. This isn't, I have no idea truly what it is. Cause again, Perry doesn't say, but that's what I think it is, is that Perry is just trying to wrestle with the fact that he needs to go and he needs to move on. That makes sense. I, I like that. It's very much seems like a parent decide like wrestling with the fact that they finally have to just take the training wheels off their kid's bike and let yeah. them, you know, bike themselves out of sight and not keep watching them every second. It also feels like a, a huge part of the story that we're told of Perry is him wanting to die. But then once he was dead, there's a sense of him regretting it because he's seeing what's happening to the people that he's left behind. And so because he could live on through R and in some way pilot R's actions, it's like he felt like he was being able to put that regret to rest because he was like, I died and it didn't fix anything. In fact, things are now worse than they were when I was alive in a lot of ways. So like at the end, he has to he's also having to be okay with the fact that he made his choice to die and he has to just be dead now, which is, which is a really sad way to look at it. But like he made the choice, he went out there fully intending to die. And now he, he made his bed and now he has to lay in it. He has to fully accept that he's gone. And R is the one who gets to live on because R chose to live. It's like rage quitting a game. And then you are sitting there, and trying to tell another person how to play the game. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so chapter 19 is the final chapter. And it is also part three. Or step three, I should say. Because step one was wanting. Step two is taking. And step three is living. And this um, is where so... we learn that Isaac Marion supports the ideology, be gay, do crimes. Want take live exactly (laughs) um so sometime later nora and rosso are welcoming a group of zombies into the stadium the first step toward helping them along in their change um m approaches nora and introduces himself as marcus uh then telling her that she's the most beautiful woman that he's ever seen um so they're basically going through this whole process of like trying to reintegrate the dead into society um and they said that they're gonna have like guards with them basically babysitting them at all times just in case they slip up and stuff um but yeah so now we've got a hint at marcus and nora having a thing which will be explored in later books she's not to she's quite flattered by uh she is she's like holy shit because he's like she's tall and he's like taller than her and she's like oh (laughs) (laughs) who's this guy um so the next scene is ours kids who are named alex and joan are running through the airport clamoring around with other former zombie kids as they collect uh boxes and tape for some reason um anyway there's music playing over the intercom as they run past a zombie woman who regards them mildly before she wanders toward a window that has been covered with pictures of for lack of a better term life Um, just like different people experiencing life in different ways and happy things 
Um, she stares at the photos for a while before she is able to take her first breath in many months and slowly her fingers begin to move to the music that is playing over the intercom. I imagine that this woman is supposed to be R's wife. That is... They don't say it on certain terms, but I think it is. That is the implication. I mean, she has the uh, name tag. Oh, she does. Right. Yes, it's R's wife. I forgot about the name tag. Um, R, the next scene is a final scene. Um, R and Julie are taking a break and lying in the grass by the airport, talking about what is going to come next. Uh, Julie asks if R remembers his name, and when he doesn't, she says that he can just pick one out if he wants, but he decides to stick with R. Um, when Julie asks if R wants his old life back, he says no, he wants to keep this one. He's basically like, well, that old life, I forgot it as easily as I forgot what I ate for lunch yesterday, so what the fuck do I need that life? I just want this one. Um, they look out at the airport, the perfect starting point for a global revolution, and R contemplates the future and their determination to fix things, uh, saying pretty boldly that they will be the cure. Um, and then on the last page of the book, uh, the person who owned the book before me wrote, what beautiful thing didn't start out scary? And then I broke down crying. <laughs> okay. I love this book. I cry every time I get to the end, though. So it's not just that part. <laughs> uh, some I don't know which one of us left it out. But one of us left out a very important bit of information that makes the end which is... make no sense without it. Uh, okay. The bonies after Grigio was taken oh, out. Oh, yeah. Uh, after he died. That's me. I think I left that out of the final chapter. Okay. So after he died, I guess he was like their final hope of maintaining the status quo. Uh, they literally just gave up. And ever since, they've just been like walking around mindlessly and bumping into things. They have like no drive direction or direction yeah. it's like they know that their empire has been toppled and so now they're just kind of slinking around like wounded animals unable to do anything else <clears throat> so yeah that's the end of warm bodies it's so good that book's so good it says so much about like remaining it says so much about a lot of things but for me the biggest thing that it did for me at least when I first read it and it continues to but it just says so much about remaining driven to live you know through all of the hard things that happen to you your life and your happiness is still worth saving no matter like no matter what you've been through no matter what you've I don't want to say no matter what you've done because, like, R has murdered people, but also he's a zombie. Even Nora points out that it's, like, not really... It wasn't really his choice that he killed people. I don't want to say, like, murderers should be forgiven. But people who have made, like, mistakes. Like, people who are still, like, generally good people who have done bad things because they were misguided still deserve to find happiness and still deserve to try and save their own lives. A good comparison think, would be war in a situation of war. Yes. Like... Obviously, people do terrible things during war, like, even within the context of war, terribly terrible things. But, like, a soldier who legitimately just takes life because they're trying to defend themselves and something they care about, mm -hmm. I think of is the same 
way I would think of our eating. It's 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 a technically bad act that you're doing out of necessity. Yes. I would also take it because we have the extended metaphor throughout the book of depression. Um, I mean, when I was in high school, I'm like, we'll put a little trigger warning in the description of this. But when I was in high school, I was regularly self-harming and wanted to kill myself. I had to be institutionalized at one point because of it. And at the end of all of that, I refound my drive to keep living, even though at the time I viewed what I had left of the person that I was before as being very little. Like I felt like I was, uh, I felt like Perry a lot of the time where I felt like there was nothing worth fighting for anymore. And I didn't like, it felt like I was just a broken like fragment of who I had been before. But at the end of all of that, when I got therapy and I was taking medication and I was like trying to find different things that made me happy. I'm not going to say this book like did it for me. Cause I read this book over a year after I was going through all of that. Um, but it was like, I still had to find the drive to take the little bit of me that I felt like I had left and rebuild someone who wanted to live. And that's a fight that I'm still fighting to this day. I mean, when you lose that much of yourself, it's hard to keep going. And that's something that like, it, it, it's continued to be explored in the, in the following books, in the series, in the burning world and in the living. And he touches on it in The New Hunger, which is the prequel. Um, but it's like you, no matter how broken you think you are, there's still something worth saving inside of you. And I think that's what I take away the most from this book because R, R is the epitome of having nothing, you know? He's literally dead. <laughs> like, he's just, he is fragmented pieces of someone who used to be alive. And he f manages to find love and meaning and drive and happiness in a world that doesn't have much of that to give him. And I think that that is really beautiful. And that's what I take away from the book. At, at the end of every reading, that is just like the little bit of, oh, that I take away from it because it's true. It's good. It's a good book. It is a good book. It's a good book. Um, we will not be reading the following books in the series on the show. Um, if you do want to read them, you can, the only way to acquire The Living, I don't know if Isaac Marion still has any copies of it left on, on his website, which is unfortunate. The only way to read it is to get it secondhand. And even then it's very difficult because he self-published it and it was a pretty limited run. Um, but the sequel, The Burning World, and the prequel, The New Hunger, were both commercially published and are easy to find on Amazon. I obviously highly recommend buying directly from the author's website because he gets the most money out of that. Um, but if you can't, they can also be found pretty easily secondhand on eBay. That's where I get most of my copies of the books because um, it's just the easiest way to find them. Um, I have, <laughs> don't worry, I've purchased many of them from his website directly because I have bought like signed copies and stuff like that. But if you would like to read more of them, I will be continuing the series here um, because I'm so in love with it. I have to. Um, and if you are going to as well, let me know.
on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at LitmastersPod. I am at Sarah S. Wilton. M is at M of many names. You can send us an email at LiteraryMastersPod at gmail.com. Uh, shoot us a coffee over at ko-fi.com slash LitmastersPod. And what's coming up next, Emmy? House of Night, chapters <laughs> 1 through 10. It's ending at page 98. This is an extremely horny young adult vampire <laughs> novel series and uh if anyone wants oh, yes. to coffee us 120 dollars, i can buy the full 12 book box set yeah no if you just have 120 dollars um, <laughs> laying around yeah for sure <laughs> um so the first book in the series in the house of night series it's so it's by pc cast and Kristen cast they are mother-daughter writing duo um and they wrote 12 books in the series at present we do intend to read all 12 with three episodes per book. Um, however, <laughs> if they suck and we want to stop, we do reserve the right to do that. <laughs> Our sanity is important. Absolutely. As we did with Maximum Ride, stopping at book two rather than reading all three books as we intended originally. We might have to stop at some point that is completely dependent on how we are feeling about the books, but at present we do intend to read all 12 books. I am very excited. This is the opposite of the Twilight series, okay? This book series is vulgar and horny. Uh, but not and I'm excited. But not good. Not like Not good. Not, not good. good. It's not no. the opposite in it's the, the good, sense that it's good. It is the good kind of bad though, yes. where you'll have fun reading it because you will be laughing hysterically while you read it. Um, the first book in the series is called Marked. I accidentally bought the third book in the series when I went to Half Price Books the other day, and they didn't have the first book. So I remembered the logo on the first book being pink. Am I correct about that? You bought the fourth because the first the book... The fourth book. The first book and the fourth book both have hot pink. Okay. Okay. That was my mistake. But the first book is called Marked. Um, we will be re uh, starting with that next week, reading chapters 1 through 10. Um, I'm excited to be returning to our roots with some bad vampire fiction. We do have to break it up every now and then. We can't just be vamp we can't just be a vampire podcast. And we unless and we, <laughs> unless. And we cannot do a maximum ride again. <laughs> We can't do Maximum Ride again. I feel terrible about making us read that. Granted, it's been a long time since I'd read the books. And uh, I, look, I can only apologize so much. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, we will see you next week. Do you have anything to add, Emmy? Don't leave your zombie boners at the doors. Goodbye. Goodbye.